0: All right, I am excited. I always love getting the opportunity to teach from God's Word. Um, The preparation for preaching from God's Word is wonderful as it um, moves me and I'm challenged and convicted and encouraged and find myself uh, marveling at the wonder of God. I think the hardest part is packing down all of the wonder that I find in God's Word into a sermon that isn't too long. But (laughs) I look forward to sharing with you this morning. Really, looking at uh, Psalm 90 this morning. And have you ever watched a movie or maybe read a book and there's characters in it who just seem really out of touch with reality? Maybe it seemed like they lived in a dream world where everything was sweet and beautiful, devoid of any pain and suffering. And often you'll see this in a comedy and it can be kind of funny as a person is smiling and happy, completely oblivious to all of the danger and destruction that's going on around them. On the other hand, it can be frustrating as this kind of blind Optimism can lead us to say, this person's so out of touch with reality, they just bury their head in the sand and won't face that things are hard. And similarly, in stories, there's characters who just can't seem to see any good in the world. No matter how many good things happen to them, no matter how much beauty exists in the world, their eyes are clouded by darkness, and they have no thankfulness for the things that they're given. And again, this can be humorous in a story, but it can also be frustrating, as we long for this person to see the world with clear eyes, that appreciate the good things that they're given. And all of us know that this kind of one-sided, either only seeing darkness or kind of burying your head in the sand to anything difficult in the world, just being happy all the time and not acknowledging difficulty, pain, or suffering, isn't just true of stories. It can be true of us sometimes, not wanting to face the difficulty of life and pretending like everything's okay, or seeming to just, I don't want to hear about the good things, I want to wallow in my gloom. And it's not just true of us, it can be true of the voices of our culture. The voice of the stoic says the world is uh, hard and it's brutal and that's the way it is, so get over it and get used to it. And then others will just kind of say, oh no, everything's fine, it's all going to work out fine and they don't want to face the difficult realities uh, that are part of life in this world. So many of us have probably found our own difficulty and suffering met by ears that refused to listen to our hardship and lips that offered happy, but empty platitudes that didn't offer us any true comfort. And I'm sure any of us who've experienced this kind of unbalanced optimism or pessimism have found it frustrating and deficient for our needs to bring us comfort, to bring us peace, to bring us hope. We long for answers that don't just gloss over the suffering and difficulty of this life and that acknowledge how hard the world is at the same time. On the other hand, our our hearts long for light, for hope. When we watch a movie or read a book that ends on a a really sad note, evil wins. Our boys always ask us, does good win in the end? Because often in stories, it seems like evil's triumphing, but then good comes and conquers. Gandalf rides over the hilltop, and the light comes behind him with a whole army when the battle seems lost. Good triumphs. We love these stories because this is how God writes stories. Because this is the way that stories are meant to end, where good triumphs in the end our God is victorious. As our church, Christ the King Church in Belfast, has been working our way through the Psalms, I've been blessed in finding that the Psalms don't fall into just one side or the other, the ditch of blind optimism, of pretending like everything's going to be fine and nothing bad could happen, or the other side of only focusing on what is bad and dark and having no hope. The Psalms give us a deep well from which we can draw hope and peace, but also the acknowledgement of suffering and sorrow. The Psalms are filled with mourning and the painful cries of people who know loneliness, sickness, pain, betrayal, and despair. And on the other hand in the Psalms we find the heights of joy that is has come as the sun breaks through the storm clouds and paints with golden hues across a beautiful landscape or for those who hold a newborn baby in their hands and feel life and joy welling up in them for those who long to hear stories told in which evil doesn't triumph in the end the Psalms are filled with the powerful loving beautiful hands of God wiping away the tears of his people promising hope Loud joy, and peace in this life, and abundantly more beyond the grave. Psalm 90 is a prayer that doesn't hide from the darkness of this world, or close its eyes to the beauty of the abundant joy and peace that is ours today and for eternity. Moses, the author of the psalm, stares death in the face, recognizing the frailty of man, but at the same time, casting himself and his people upon the loving, eternal, gracious arms of the eternal Father, whose steadfast love abounds to those who seek refuge in him. As we work our way through this psalm, I hope that we are moved to face the difficulties of this world that surround us, rather than hiding from them. I also hope that we can grow in both appreciating the frailty and meanness of death, while recognizing that we serve a God who stands firm, even when nations, empires, economies, societies, and even our own bodies crumble, this psalm is a hope—a psalm of hope for God's people in the midst of troubled times. Let's read Psalm 90 together, beginning in verse one: "Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations." Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the worlds, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them alone as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. As we begin this psalm, we see, as I mentioned, that this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This meant that he was someone who spoke to God on behalf of the people, and also God, he spoke to the people on behalf of God. In addition to this, a look at the life of Moses shows us that he was someone who was acquainted with grief, trouble, and suffering. It's also helpful to remember that Moses spent most of his life wandering, He fled his home in Egypt was a shepherd in a distant land for 40 years and then spent the rest of his life wandering in the wilderness with a grumbling people waiting for a lasting home. The importance of recognizing this quality of the life of Moses becomes apparent as we read verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What a beautiful thing for someone who comes from a nomadic people to be able to say that the living God has been their home, no matter where they found themselves. In Hebrews eleven we read, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short lived pleasure of sin. He considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on a reward. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the king's anger. But Moses persevered as one who sees him, who is invisible. Along with his ancestor Abraham, we read in uh, Hebrews 11, Moses also obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. At this point in the nation of Israel's history, they had never had a home. The only land they possessed was a burial plot. They owned a piece of land that was a graveyard. But Moses says that God has been their dwelling place in all generations. No matter how much the people of Israel moved around, no matter what the surrounding circumstances were like, they always had God as their home. This word translated dwelling place, home, or refuge carries with it the idea of a shelter, safe place, or a place of refuge. We see this in the story of Joseph, where even when Joseph was being put into prison as a slave, falsely accused in a foreign land, God's steadfast love and favor was still with him. Similarly, for the entire nation of Israel, and for God's people all throughout time, He is their refuge, regardless as to what the surrounding circumstances may be. Moving into verse 2, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you would form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. To the Jewish people, nothing was more lasting in the physical world than the mountains. Just as the sea stood as a symbol of chaos and danger in the ancient world, so the mountains stood as a symbol of security, steadfastness, and permanence. For Moses, there really wasn't anything more permanent in the physical world that he could use as an illustration. Even for us today, when we think of the mountains, they're a symbol of strength and permanence as well. We might build great cities, skyscrapers, and do great things, but the mountains have stood long before the things we built were built, and they will stand long after they crumble. Great nations and empires have come and gone, but the mountains still stand firm. Long after this generation, and many generations after, mountains will still stand. It's because of this nearly eternal nature of the mountains that Moses uses them to demonstrate the lasting nature of God. God is not simply as lasting as the mountains, but before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As human beings, we have a strong desire to grab hold of things that are lasting. We work so hard to build kingdoms, systems, lifestyles and legacies that will last as long as possible and stand strong in the face of the fiercest circumstances. At times it seems that these systems, these nations, these powers might last forever. In fact, we may even find ourselves thinking that our lives will just go on forever, that we won't die, we kind of put it out of our mind but the mountains stand to remind us that there are things that last much longer than we do. And here Moses draws our attention to the eternal living God who came before the mountains and who will always be. If we want to hold on to something lasting, we need to hold on to Him. It's important for us to realize here the significance of God always being God and always being on His throne. Even if the mountains were to crumble, even if the nations were to collapse, and even if everything in this world that we consider to be stable and trustworthy was to be destroyed, God himself would still be on his throne, in control, perfectly good, ruling, unshaken. He is always on His throne and always in control. Contrary to the thinking of the deist, God has not simply stepped away from His creation, setting it spinning like a top, but instead He is intimately involved in it. Hold on to these opening two verses as we move into the rest of the psalm, because verses 3 through 11 paint a very bleak and difficult picture of the frailty of mankind. So we remember and begin with the permanence of God and His goodness to His people. We're going to move into the darkness and brokenness and frailty of life in the midst of the the sin and its cost, its toll on this world. As we look at the rest of the psalm, we need to be reminded that God is a refuge to His people in all generations. That He is from everlasting to everlasting the God who reigns and is in control. Looking at verses 3 through 6, we see that Moses contrasts the eternal lasting nature of God with the frailty of men and how short our lives are. Beginning in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with the flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And although God is reigning from eternity to eternity, as human beings, we're not like the mountains, we're like the grass of the field that springs up in the morning on a hot summer day and is scorched by the sun and dies by evening. Mount Moses compares the living God to seemingly immortal mountains, he compares us to frail grass, kind of humiliating. God formed man from dust, and before long, it's back to dust that we go. Well, to God, a thousand years is as brief as a watch of the night, which was about four hours. We don't even last to the end of a single day, in Moses' illustration. It's important to note here, too, that God is the one who sweeps men away. The limit set on our lives is not something arbitrary or something that God cannot hold back. In fact, it's a limit that God himself has set. Those who do not believe in God, namely those who believe that the world is a product of blind chance natural forces, would say that mankind's lifespan and even our existence on this world is just a product of blind indifferent fate. Without God, man finds himself scrambling to find the best defenses against his mortality. We struggle and fight to live as many years as we possibly can. And after all, if this life is all that there is, we'd better hold on to it with everything that we have. At the same time, this way of thinking leaves us with a sense of anxiety that we'd better get everything out of this life than we possibly can, all of the experiences and triumph and success and praise, because this life is all that there is. But a life lived at this perspective has no real purpose. And what satisfaction is there in life without a purpose? If we really are merely a product of blind chance, if just forces of nature arbitrarily brought us into existence, then why are we here? And whatever purpose we come up with is just a matter of our own subjective creation, not something that's strong and lasting or objective. And if we aren't made for anything, then what purpose do we live for? We might come up with a dozen reasons for which to live, but at the end of the day, if there is no designer, if there is no one who made this world with purpose and who made us with purpose, if we all live at the hands of blind chance, then we're merely fooling ourselves in thinking that there is purpose to life in this world. We fight desperately to push back the end of the day where we as grass wither and die, hoping desperately to defeat the mortality that has found and consumed everyone that has gone before us. That if we are in fact created by a living, intelligent, personal, purposeful, loving God, who is in control not only of our lives, but of the day of our death, then we can know that there is purpose and value to both our life And our death. Knowing that God is the one that returns man to the dust reminds us that death is not something that is arbitrary or without purpose. As Christians, we know that God created a perfect world and that human beings were a part of this perfect creation. As we move into the following verses, we see that it is in fact our sin that has led to the shortness of life and to the tragedy of our death. Beginning in verse 7, we read, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And when we first read this psalm, you might wonder why it is that God allows the lives of men to be so short, and why it is that God Himself makes them that way. If God is eternal and all-powerful and in absolute control, then why is it that we are more like the grass of the field than like the almost eternal, lasting mountains? Why didn't he make us like mountains? In these verses we see that we are consumed by the anger and wrath of God against our sin. And while God created man perfect and in his image, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, thinking that they knew better than him. Rather than trusting the benevolent God who had given them an entire garden of goodness, fellowship with him and with each other, an intimate relationship with the living God, they chose to believe the lies of the serpent that told them that they were better off without God. And mankind himself brought sin and its accompanying death and destruction not only to the whole human race, but to all of creation. In verse 8, Moses says, "...you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of our presence." The Bible shows us that we are all sinners, impossibly separated from the God who loves us. And since God is a God of justice, holiness, and righteousness, he must judge the wicked ways of mankind. Notice that Moses doesn't say, for their sins are always before you, their secrets, secret sins in the light of your presence. Instead, Moses uses the plural, we, including himself, to indicate that he too is a sinner along with the people, and that he himself has secret sins that he has tried to hide that are now laid bare in the light of a glorious, good, and just God. Remember that the title of the psalm includes Moses, the man of God. Even as God's messenger... And even as one who bore the title of a man of God, Moses himself was also a sinner. And a moment ago, I said that the Bible shows us that we're all sinners and impossibly separated from the love of God. We're separated from Him, a relationship with Him. And if this stood by itself, it would be the worst news we could ever receive. But it's important to recognize that this is different than what every other religion or worldview in the world tells us. Every other worldview and belief system tells us these are the tools or this is the path, these are the steps that you need to reach righteousness, to reach God. Everyone has some sort of religion, some sort of measure of righteousness. Only the Bible tells us that our sins before a righteous and holy, just God are insurmountable. We deserve the wrath of God. And Moses doesn't try to mitigate or minimize his sin or the sin of the people. This psalm is a prayer of confession. Moses and the people of Israel are confessing to God that they have sinned against him. They're not denying that they deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on them. They're recognizing that the suffering and death that they're facing is a just consequence of their sins. The second way that the Christian faith uh, differs from other teachings, worldviews, and religions in the world is that it not only tells us that there is no way we can reach God, but it also tells us that a just, merciful, and loving God has actually reached down and come to us. While every other religion in the world will tell you how to climb your way to God, the Bible shows you a God who, without violating his perfect justice and righteousness, has chosen at great cost to himself to save mankind. The only way for him to do this without compromising his righteousness and justice was for him to die in our place, taking the wrath of God that we deserve. bearing the death that we deserve to die. The week of Christ's crucifixion began with him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And one of the reasons that Christ did this is to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament by riding in on a donkey as it was proclaimed that the Messiah would. Christ was proclaiming, I am the Messiah. But... While this was one of the things he was doing, Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem by the the people of Israel, and they praising him as the son of David. They thought that they needed a king that would saved them from the Roman occupation. They thought that that's what he was coming for. But what they really needed was a king that had come to die in their place, that they might live. They wanted a mighty warrior king who would overthrow their oppressors and change their circumstances. But what they really needed was a suffering king who could bear up under the immense wrath of God against the sins of mankind throughout history. The only way for the righteous anger and wrath of God that Moses speaks of in this psalm to be satisfied was for it to be poured out on God's own Son. For he himself to bear the wrath we deserve. And while some may scoff at the idea that anyone deserves the wrath of God, Moses and the people of Israel recognize that the judgment of God was their due. Rather than trying to resist the wrath of God and call it unjust, Moses confesses his sins and the sins of the people. He accepts the wrath of God, poured out on them in the form of suffering and death, That it was a just consequence and punishment for the wickedness of him and his people. It said that a woman approached Napoleon Bonaparte, and she came on behalf of her son, and she pleaded with him because her son was sentenced to death for a crime he had committed. And Napoleon said, "Ma'am, the punishment for his crime is just." And the woman said, "But sir, I do not ask for justice. I ask for mercy." And it said, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but that Napoleon moved by this woman's love for her son and her shrewdness. He granted her son pardon, not because it was the just thing to do, but because of mercy. We don't want the justice of God. We actually want the mercy of God. We don't want God to deal with us according to our sins. We want Him to deal with us according to His mercy. Romans 3 tells us, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin mis- and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not exactly the title we want to have over us as we go before God and say, "God, I deserve. I deserve life. I deserve all these good things." We stand before God as condemned, apart from the work of Christ. All of us deserve to have the wrath of God poured out on us. But what we desire of God is that he would show us the mercy that he's made possible in Christ. It's for this reason that Christ entered Jerusalem that final week before his crucifixion. He knew that he had to suffer the wrath of God in order that the souls of men might be saved. And so it well is that Moses turns from confessing his sin... And the sin of his people, he doesn't just stop there and say we deserve your just wrath, your judgment, we deserve all of this. But he turns from there to ask the loving, merciful, and wise God that he would relent and show them mercy, pouring out his love and favor on them. In verses 12-17, through we see Moses lift up to God a prayer on behalf of the people and himself, asking boldly that God would bless them in spite of their sin. Beginning in verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The first verse of this section is sobering and encouraging. It reminds us that an encounter with our mortality is actually helpful. That learning to number our days, to have death on the horizon and know that it's there, actually brings wisdom. Moses says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The implication of this question is that no one considers the power of God's anger and his wrath if we simply reflect on what has come before in the psalm, I think that most of us will admit that at least at times we've thought of ourselves as invincible. That, I'll just keep on living. We at least live our lives that way sometimes. We don't like to think of ourselves as grass of the field that's here today and gone tomorrow. There are times in our lives when we are faced more sharply with the painful reality that death looms near and that we are powerless to, to resist it. And with all of our modern medicine, all of our safety measures and defenses, all of our planning, and all of the things that we do to ensure that death doesn't come knocking at our door, we must face the fact that death comes to every man and woman someday. Like Moses said in verse 10, some of us may live to a ripe old age of 70 or 80 or maybe even longer but even that is short when you realize that God has written eternity on the hearts of men and women. Death is a terrible tragedy, and it is something that should be mourned. But Moses said in verse 12 that numbering our days is a means by which God grants us a heart of wisdom. We have a tendency to hide from the truth, and live lies that pretend as if death is not certain. We often live today as if there were no end to our days on earth. For those who do not know God, they may deny that there is anything after death, but no one can really deny death. It is certain. It is coming for all of us. For the believer, we know that not only death awaits, but that death is only a doorway to the life that lies beyond This life is just a passing shadow in comparison to the eternity of the next life. We also know that as Moses has made clear in the psalm, that it is God himself that controls the end of each of our lives. When we recognize our frailty and the certainty of the end of our days on this earth, it actually brings us wisdom. Numbering our days helps us to live as faithful and wise stewards of the days that God has given us on earth, recognizing that each of them is a gift and something that we are privileged to use for the glory of our King. Every one of us, whether we believe in God or not, will one day stand before our Maker and give an account of what we have done with the days that we have been given. When we number our days and recognize that our lives are as fragile as the grass, we see how important it is that we stand in a right relationship with our Maker. Even more so when we realize that what we do today has implications not just for this life, but for eternity. As believers, we should all hope and strive to enter into the presence of God and be greeted with the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That comes as we number our days and spend them well. As I've already mentioned, this isn't a matter of our own efforts, but rather a matter of absolute dependence upon God and the work that He's done in Christ and the work that He's continuing to do in and through us by the power of His Spirit at work in us, His people, the Church. This is why Moses and the people of Israel in this psalm cast themselves before God as sinners in need of forgiveness. Moses asks that God would teach them to number their days that they may get a heart of wisdom. These final verses are filled with requests that God would provide for his people because Moses recognizes that God alone is able to provide the things that his people need. When we come face to face with our frailty, it's then that we realize how desperately we need an all-powerful, all-wise, loving, generous God, who is eternal and lasting, to sit down and save us not only from the circumstances around us, not only from death, but from ourselves, from our own sin and brokenness. Today, in our country and around the world, People are facing the great challenges that are going on and it's bringing fear into so many of our hearts. We watch the news, we find very little that's encouraging. And in the past decade we've heard of wars, a nuclear reactor meltdown, tsunamis, earthquakes, economic and social upheaval, great tragedies of violence. And now it seems that the whole world is reeling in the midst of COVID and the economic and social chaos that's erupted with it. We find ourselves trapped in the middle of this prayer of Moses, feeling our weakness and our mortality more intimately and more fiercely than we want to. It's times like these that strip away our comforts and our sense of security, and lay bear how desperately we need the arms of a loving God to protect us, to care for us, and to provide for us. It is here that we recognize how badly we need God to be our refuge. Our shelter and our home throughout all generations. Moses says in verse thirteen, "O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants." As I've already mentioned, Moses recognizes clearly his need and the people's need for God's mercy. Like the woman in that story who begged for mercy from Napoleon Bonaparte, we also need mercy. We need God to show His compassion and His pity to His people. It's important for us to recognize that Moses was able to ask God to have pity on His people. Anyone who has spent time reading the Bible will know that God is a God of compassion and mercy. He cares tenderly for all of His creation, from the smallest bird flying in the sky to the biggest, most powerful creatures in the sea, to mankind as those that bear his own image. Along with Moses and the people of Israel, we should confess our sins before God, ask for his forgiveness, and ask that he would pour out his mercy on us and provide for us. And then we know that Christ chose to triumph over sin and death. He died in our place that the wrath of God might be satisfied. All who turn their eyes to Jesus as their source of salvation... He is our rescue from the wrath of God that is due to us. And we find not only forgiveness for our sins, we're not only justified, the judge doesn't just say, all charges against you are dropped; The punishment has been carried by somebody else. But he says, come home with me. I'm adopting you. You get to sit at my table and be one of my children. We're not simply forgiven. We're given newness of life and triumph over death and hope for the future. In verse 14, Moses prays, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses recognizes that the source of joy, satisfaction, and gladness is God alone. As Christ prayed in John seventeen three, This is eternal life, that they may understand and know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not just that we need God to give us gifts to provide for our needs. And it isn't that we merely need His mercy to save us from our sins. We were created by a loving God for a relationship with Him. It is in Him that we find satisfaction in life everlasting. We were made to love God, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever. And only... When we're in a living relationship with Him, are we fulfilled? Do we find our purpose? Do we find the hope, joy, and satisfaction that our hearts long for? In verse 15, Moses goes on to ask, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. And what a beautiful thing for Moses to ask. Scholars think that Moses most likely wrote this when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert after they refused to enter the Promised Land, and the current generation is literally gone off so that the next generation can enter the land. Here, in the midst of suffering and wandering, Moses asks that they might have as much gladness as they have had suffering. And while this is a beautiful thing to ask for, We know from the rest of Scripture that God gives His people far more than an equal measure. He doesn't give us as much gladness as He's given us suffering. We won't simply receive back all that we've lost. In fact, we can't even imagine the immense riches and blessings that God has in store for us as His people in this life and in the life to come even more than we as loving parents desire to give our kids good things and that they would succeed and have the best things this life has to offer. God desires to lavish His children with good gifts. We as parents, this parent-child relationship is meant to teach us about God and it's just a dim reflection of the greatness of God's love for His own children. So you think of that love that you have for your children, and you can know that God's love for you as His children and for your children is magnified a thousandfold or more beyond your own care. He loves your children and you more than you can imagine. In verse 16, Moses goes on to ask, "...let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children." Here again, Moses recognizes that the greatest joy and satisfaction that mankind can know is to know God and enjoy Him. Moses is asking in verse 16 for God to work amongst His people, showing the greatness of who He is amongst them. But Moses doesn't just ask that God would show Himself to Moses and those who are living, but to generations after them. And he's the desire of every generation to see good things for the generations that follow. And so here Moses asks that God's blessings would not only be poured out on himself and those around him, but on all that will come after him as well. On their children and their children's children's children. The desire of every person in this world is to leave some kind of legacy. I mentioned earlier that Scripture tells us that we have eternity written on our hearts. We long to live, not just as long as the mountains, but longer than the mountains. We build houses and businesses, monuments, skyscrapers, cities and nations with the hope that what we do will last beyond us. That we leave a lasting impact. And this is actually a noble and natural good desire. It's one that God as our maker has put into our hearts we were made to live for eternity. We were made to be eternal stewards of the world that God has made. And as those made in His image, we were made to live, love, to create, to tend, to care for, to build, and so on, without end. Not only were we meant to go on and on and on, but our work was meant to live on as well. This is why Moses' words in verse 17 should resonate with all of our hearts. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's often been said that trying to build something in this world, trying to do great things in this world, is like building a sandcastle by the seashore. And no matter how big and powerful or how big and strong our sandcastle might be, any of us who live near the ocean know that when the tide comes in, when the tide goes back out, that sandcastle will be gone, leaving no trace of the work that we did behind. And it's true that this has become what becomes of our work in this world if we do it just for this world. The nature of life in this world is that everything is breaking down and dying. Whatever great empire or work we may create in this world, it isn't in and of itself lasting. Like the sandcastle by the seashore, it may stand in elegance and receive the praise of everyone standing around for a time, but it will soon be gone and other castles will rise and fall between the tide coming and going. But when we learn to number our days as Moses said, we realize that there is a God who is eternal and who stands longer than the seemingly immortal mountains. We can know that our work can have lasting value that stretches on, not only beyond beyond our own lives, but into eternity. Moses' request in this final verse is that God's favor would be on his people, and that he would establish the work of their hands. When we can't make our work last, God can When we live our lives for the glory of God, loving those around us, seeking to praise His name and lift Him up in the smallest and the greatest tasks of our days, and in all of these things entrust our work to God, it is then that we see that God takes our work and gives it eternal worth. It's true that unless God builds the house, the workers labor in vain, but God invites us, to build the house with Him. He invites us into His work. And as we offer ourselves as instruments in His hands, our work is established because it is the work of the everlasting God. As we think in this psalm, we should realize that our mortality and the shortness of our days is not something to be afraid of. Death is not an arbitrary thing that comes by the cruel hands of an indifferent fate. It's not just a force of the universe that we cannot overcome. Rather, God himself has shortened the days of mankind so that our hearts would turn towards him, so that we might find life, satisfaction, and hope in him alone. Even the mountains will crumble and fade, but God is eternal. He is a refuge to everyone that seeks Him and a home to all those that would abide in Him. In Him we have hope not just for this life, but for eternity, for life beyond the grave. When we look at the frightening things going on in the world around us, we don't need to be afraid because we can know that the everlasting God holds us in His hands. He has not been shaken from His throne. He has not lost His grip on this world. And He is intimately involved in it, working all things together for good to those who love Him, to those called according to His purpose. We know who He is. We know His goodness. And we can trust Him. Even if this life is filled with trouble and suffering, we know that our eternal destiny is secure so long as we put our hope in the saving work of Christ. Then we can be certain, not only will we have as many glad days as we have suffered, but that this present life doesn't even begin to compare to the wondrous glory and blessing that God has in store for us, for the wonderful things that He desires to lavish upon us as His children, for the ages to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father thank you for this chance to study your word thank you Lord that we don't need to stick our hand in the sand and pretend like everything's fine and there's nothing wrong or everything will just work out okay we don't need to pretend like there isn't suffering and hardship and at the same time the world is not just a cruel indifferent world bound by fate with no purpose no beauty and no light but Lord your word gives us Words to praise you to cry out to you from our deepest darkest suffering and to rejoice in the most beautiful moments of life and in all of these things to know that you hear us that you care that you love us and that you are intimately involved in our lives in the lives of those around us and in this world and even as the things that we thought were firm are shaken Lord help us to trust in you and know that you are more eternal than the mountains, that You are more firm than anything else this world could ever hope to offer. Nations rise and fall and You stand firm. We thank You for Your love. We pray that we would abide in Your grace, Lord. We pray that You would establish the work of our hands. We pray that You would have mercy on us and our nation. And we pray that You would help us to number our days that we might gain wisdom, God. Thank you for the greatness of your love and mercy in our lives. And we pray that you would help us to just abide in you and rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.